Hello. Hello. Is this R. Lee Proctor of the Minx Devlin Chronicles? That's right. I'm happy to speak with you, Mr. Proctor. You're not doing that bad a job. You got it mostly right. I'm impressed. Uh, I'm sorry. Who is this? I'm Clara Devlin. Give me that again. <laughs> I'm Clara Devlin. Minx Devlin. You're alive? I think so. Last time I checked. But there was the accident in the desert back in 1969. Oh, I'll explain all that if you want to get together. I'm, I'm here in Las Vegas, but uh, I'm 90 years old. I'd advise you to hurry. This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles. A ten-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap, worthless trumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you. A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire. She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive. This is your host, Arlie Proctor. I'm here with my colleagues, Hazel Matthews and Skyler DeWolf, on location in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, just like everyone else in the world, we were certain that Mix Devlin had died in a fiery car accident on New Year's Day, 1969. Turns out, much to our shock, she's very much alive. She's 90 years old, and at this moment, she's flat on her back, 46 feet in the air, lying on a yoga mat on top of a scaffold of steel tubes and couplers. She's painting a mural on the ceiling of a defunct Polynesian restaurant called Lucky Louie's Original Shrunken Head, soon to be the corporate headquarters of a fast food gourmet burrito business. To be specific, she is dabbing gold accents on the head plumes of a gleeful Quetzalcoatl, spiraling its clawed albatross wings in a victory spin over what's left of Las Vegas after some kind of world-ending event that seems to have brought back the dinosaurs. I can't believe that's really her. I'll be right down. I've spent 20 years immersing myself in her career. I know as much about her as anyone in the world, and I cannot believe I am about to meet her in person. You must be Hazel. <laughs> okay. Here we are in the Bugsy Siegel suite of the El Cortez Hotel and Casino with the recently undeceased star of this podcast, Clara Minx Devlin. You know, we had our final three episodes all planned out, but uh, those plans are gone. I've got a million questions. Me too. I am so happy to be finally looking into the eyes of my beautiful, smart, delightful granddaughter, whose life I have been following since the day she was born. You have? You betcha. I have to admit, I was a little worried when your parents enrolled you in that Bible college. <laughs> and then becoming engaged to Dwayne Funk. <laughs> that actually is the first time I considered blowing my cover and contacting you. Oh, I wish you had. Oh no, it all turned out for the best. Finding out that you were my grandmother changed everything for me. You're my hero. Oh, first time anyone has ever said that to me, and thanks. 
So, how shall we proceed? Well, so, if this were a movie, our establishing shot would be November 11th, 1937. Uh, I'm standing in an oak panel library over the garage of a huge white Spanish castle in Beverly Hills, owned by Freddie March and Flo Eldridge. This is the night when I take my oath and join the Hollywood Young Communist League. And that's your mother's idea, right? Oh, yeah, my mother insisted. At least I thought she was my mother. Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury was her name. Anyway, I put my hand over my heart and I say, I, Clara Mooney, am now a young communist pioneer. I pledge my life to the cause of the positive abolition of private property so as to end human self-alienation and thus build a classless people's paradise where all people of every race, creed, class, and sex are equal. I will work hard, study hard, and devote all my energy to the communist cause. <laughs> it's funny what you remember. I can't recall where I put my car keys in the morning, but I am word perfect on that silly oath I spoke one time 81 years ago. <laughs> now, this is the night you meet Hemingway, yes? Oh, right. You've already done Cuba. Yeah, uh, a bunch of lefties were showing his documentary, The Spanish Earth, as a fundraiser for the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in Spain. I'd love to know something about your mother. My mother. She was a piece of work. I'm betting Mr. DeWolf can tell us something about Maggie Kingsbury. I can indeed. Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury was a prodigious writer and producer of soap operas in the 1930s and 40s. The New York Daily News called her, I love this, the sugar cookie Shakespeare of suds. At one time in the 30s, she was writing and producing three of the top five most popular daily soaps in America, The Endless Night, John's Other Widow, and her biggest hit, The Heartbreak of Daphne Brent. So what was she like? She was a force of nature. She was a rich, savvy, charismatic businesswoman who was also an ardent communist and a high-functioning alcoholic. On that night in 1937, Maggie bends down, slightly sloshed, to congratulate me on joining the party. Oh, darling, we are just so happy for you. I'm sure if your real mother were alive, she'd just be so proud to see how you've turned out. The little orphan girl makes good. Real mother? Exactly. Real mother. What the hell? I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. I stared at her, her eyes widened. She knew she'd blown it. I staggered to the bathroom to vomit my guts out, and then a maid held me in her arms until I passed out. Wow. So who was your real mother? I, what happened to her? Skylar, you'll be happy about this. Here are the missing Minx Devlin scrapbook numbers one and two. Oh this first one, be careful with it, it's kind of brittle was started by Maggie herself. My life begins here on page one. Thank you so much. I will be very careful with this. Here's a news clipping, Los Angeles Express, February 7th, 1932, and I quote, Slay Vixen in three-way Cinemaland death rampage, tot missing. You are the tot? That's right. My mother, well, that is my real mother, was one of the million beauty pageant winners from Crib Death, Iowa. 
who came to Hollywood to become the next Clara Bow, only when she got here, she found out what she was up against. She did some extra work, but her only talking role was in a grindhouse exploitation quickie called Vice Racket Vixen, hence the Vixen reference in that headline. I'm reading the article here, but I'm betting what really happened was a different story. Well, what happened was my mother was shacked up in a Hollywood boarding house with a hard-drinking vaudeville comic named Kendall Slats Randall. He thought she was banging another one of the boarding house residents, a Gower Gulch cowboy star named Bob Hooten, a.k.a. Rootin Tootin Hooten. I'm pretty sure Slats had been beating her like a drum for months, and this time he came at her with a knife. Hooten heard what was going on and barged in just as Randall shivved her in the heart. Randall turned the knife on Hooten and killed himself. At least that's what I remember now. You... You were there? You were in the room when your mother was killed? Yeah, I was. Oh, that, that must have been horrible. Well, now, you know, I had no memory of it for 30-something years. That's why I thought Maggie was my real mother, because she's the first mom I could remember. So, so when did you finally remember what happened? In Mexico. Ah, Mexico, the lost years. Skylar, uh, her story, her way. Yes, sorry, continue. Well, my first memory is living with an ex-Max Senate gag man named W. Speed Wanamaker. I'm guessing he's the one who grabbed me out of that room. He, he was trying to launch a threadbare knockoff of our gang to compete with the Hal Roach product. His version was called the Gas House Kids. He had the other kids, bean pole, sniffles, tub of lard, chocolate drop, you get the gag. But he didn't have his Darla yet, his female lead, until I showed up. So what? He, he rescued you or kidnapped you? Both. All of the above. He snatched me from that room, told the cops he was my Uncle Wally, that being the W of W Speed Wanamaker. Of course, nobody knew that my real father was the semi-famous Doc... Hazard, I was a love child. No listing for a father on my birth certificate. I'm curious, did these did these kiddie comedies of Mr. Wanamaker ever get produced? They did. W. Speed Wanamaker wrote, directed, shot, and edited 12 six-minute shorts on the streets of Culver City in a little under a month for no money at all. Clara here is quite charming under the most dire circumstances imaginable. Very good. That pretty much sums up my whole film career. And then Wanamaker sold me to Maggie Kingsbury. I'm, I'm sorry, sold you? Yep, that's right. For money? The receipt is right there in the scrapbook. Uh, uh, oh my, here we go. There's Maggie's name at the top. It says, agreed upon goods. $1,250, cash, paid in full. Maggie desperately needed a precocious five-year-old for one of her soap operas, The Heartbreak of Daphne Brent. I could read and read with emotion. So did she adopt you? Well, she did, and she let me move in with her. No more boarding house, yay. Now I was living in a medieval castle with a maid, my own room, lots of toys, and plenty of food in the icebox. Too bad that Maggie was even more of a slave driver than Wanamaker. Up at 5 a.m., rehearsal, new pages, more rehearsal. 
And then at three, I was on the air as Wee Baby Bonnie in The Heartbreak of Daphne Brent. Now, how old were you at this time? I was five when I started. Our show was carried by 97 CBS-affiliated stations across America. And God help any performer who muffed a line, coughed, rustled a script page. I'd get a backhanded slap to the face, in private, of course. What about school? Wasn't there a law? <laughs> what a joke. The law said that working children had to be tutored. My tutor was Maggie's crazy boyfriend, Barney Fullerton. He owned a small chain of drugstores and kept Maggie well-supplied with benzodrine inhalers. Maggie was a speed freak. Big time. <laughs> My schooling consisted of getting locked into Maggie's quite wonderful library as Maggie and Barney cracked open those inhalers and washed the drug-soaked paper stripped down with straight Kentucky bourbon. I read a million books, even taught myself art history. I was so happy there. Until the door opened and Maggie came in. Why? Because she'd be drunk and buzzed and filled with rage about God knows what, and no matter what I did, she'd end up beating the hell out of me. This went on till I was 15, when I'd finally had enough. What did you do? Well, besides beating me, Maggie was taking every dollar I earned on the radio and treating me like a slightly dim servant girl. One day, I told her I wanted the money I was earning and I wanted my own place. I'm guessing that didn't go over very well. <laughs> Maggie lost her mind. She started screaming, I picked you up out of the gutter, you ungrateful little bitch. She turned white, clenched her fists, and started to come towards me. I picked up her Renee Lalique vase with three nudes, and I threw it at her. It hit the wall, shattered into a zillion pieces. I knew my life was about to change. I raced up to my room and started to pack. Were you scared? A little, but, well, I figured whatever happened, it had to be better than this. Don't forget, I was a radio pro by this time. I could make money on my own if I had to, but I didn't have to. After a couple of hours, she and Cece Bliss came in and told me they were sending me to the Tom Paine Progressive Labor School in Philadelphia. Next morning, Maggie and I were crying our eyes out as she put me on that Union Pacific streamliner to Philly. My tears were tears of pure joy. After 10 years of plush servitude, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there away from Maggie. I was free. We're going to take a short break here so that if you are so inclined, you can head over to our website, richlyspun.com, and support this podcast with a small donation. We are 100% supported by our beloved listeners, several of whom have foregone for just one day their normal venti no-whipped ice skinny hazelnut macchiato with light ice, sugar-free syrup, and four extra shots, just so they could ship us that money, just for one day. Would you do that? Think about it? We'd love it if you would. Now back to The Atomic Bombshell. So this would be the first time you had ever been in any kind of real school. Well, I never got there. Never intended to, actually. Never gave it a second thought. The streamliner stopped in Elko, Nevada at sunset, and 
Something told me to jump off. I cashed in the rest of my ticket and pondered my options. One of my radio pals had been a hobo, and he told me the best place for a vagabond to get a night's sleep is the local graveyard. <laughs> so I wandered into the Elko Civic Cemetery. I settled on a nice, cushy gravesite using my coat as a blanket. Just as I was drifting off to dreamland, I heard this bump. There were two guys digging up some poor bastard's coffin. <laughs> wow. So so what were they up to? Well, I thought they were poverty-stricken med students looking for a bargain skeleton, but as I got closer, I could see I was wrong. There was a skinny thug working for a chubby guy who looked like the bankroll man for a floating crap game. So I cleared my throat. They jumped three feet in the air. Finally, the beefy guy sticks out his hand. He says, Herb Zuzman's the name. Would you entertain a proposition to join us in the hell for leather world of professional show business? And that's how you met Herbert W. Zuzman? Right. At midnight, robbing a grave. That's everything you need to know about the man. He was a cross between a serial killer and a circus parade. <laughs> well, when I stop laughing, I say, sure, why the hell not? So we sit in the back seat of his 1936 LaSalle while his henchman finishes bagging the cadaver. Seems Herbie is here in Elko on a five-day movie shoot and his leading lady, the part calls for a 16-year-old young woman who goes wrong, had just left him to headline on a Minsky burlesque runway. He asked me if I'm 21 because I have to be of age for this to be legal. And you were like, what, 15? Right, so I say, do I look 21? He says, you look 16, which will pass for 18, which is close enough. <laughs> look, let's just leave the age part blank. In fact, to hell with contracts. They just make work for shysters. Let's shake on it. And then he fills me in on his racket. First he shoots the film, then he tours it around the country, four walling theaters and putting on a show. He says, I don't suppose you'd consider joining our cockeyed caravan. I tell him I'd be delighted. He's shocked. I say, now think about it. I like sleeping in graveyards. You like robbing them. We were made for each other. And I guess we were. This is Jailbait Baby, your first starring role in a full-length movie. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to be a star in the worst possible way, and I certainly got my wish. You mean having sex with a hunchback? You've seen it! Loved it. Skyler, enlighten us about this masterwork of the cinema arts. I can bring it up on my iPad right now. This is horrifying. This movie has never failed when I've shown it to my Dangerous Films Club. Really? Mink's Jailbait Baby is now rightly considered a landmark in grindhouse exploitation, if for no other reason than it breaks all ten commandments, and a few that Moses was too embarrassed to mention. The film opens on death row. Embittered, good-time girl Floozy Flanagan, played by our girl Clara Devlin, is giving her final confession to Father McGillicuddy. Well, Father, it all started that fateful evening of my high school graduation, when the bubbles of that first forbidden champagne cocktail tickled my nose. We flash back to that fateful night, bored with her goody-goody boyfriend, straight arrow Woodrow Truesmith, Faith Flanagan decides to have one night of whoopee with free-spending, fun-loving Rascal Ramsey. 
he talks her into a champagne cocktail. One shot of giggle water becomes three, and Rascal hustles her to the local roadhouse gambling club, owned by an oily con man named Wheeler Dealer Weems. She's coaxed into playing the crooked roulette wheel, and in a flash, she's $10,000 in debt to the house. Weems takes her into his office. I'll have that $10,000 now. But, but I don't have it. Then I guess I'll have to ask your father, the honorable mayor of the city, for it. No, no, you can't do that. It would ruin him. That's none of my concern. I'm calling him right this instant. No, please, there must be some other way. Perhaps you and I can, well, work something out? I'll do anything you say to get that money. Did you say anything? Anything. <laughs> Weems then forces the virginal Faith into his slimy vice girl racket, where she's deflowered in silhouette, by one of Wheeler Dealer's most repugnant patrons, a rod-wielding hunchback named Gimpy Gallagher. Faith becomes floozy Flanagan. She soon discovers she's pregnant by the hunchback. When she informs Weems, he growls, You're of no use to me now. Get out and casts her into the gutter outside his club, where her ex-boyfriend, the straight arrow Woodrow, now a policeman, discovers her. Enraged, he rushes into the club and pulls his service revolver on the slimy pimp. Floozy fights Woodrow for the gun, and just as she grabs it, it goes off. The gangster keels, ketchup spurting from his chest. The girl and boy look at each other. Cut to graphic, grainy, color childbirth footage. It's actually a goat being born, but it's so fuzzy and weirdly cut that you can't really tell. This sequence ends with the nurse hustling the swaddled babe away before the mother can even see it. We flash back to death row. I lost everything, Padre. I lost my baby, my self-respect, and now I'll lose my life. Threw it all away for a tawdry kit bag of drunken dreams and soiled thrills, and now, and now. Now, child, I'm afraid you'll spend eternity burning in hell. But perhaps through this motion picture, your tale might deter another lass from straying. Yes, I hope so. Wrap it up, Padre. Old Sparky's waiting. She's led down the last mile, strapped into the electric chair and fried, once again in shadow, as the horrible shafts of man-made lightning morph into a plume of black vapor, her head slumps forward. The nightmare is over. A life has ended, says Father McGillicuddy to a disconsolate Woodrow. Then the priest shocks the policeman by handing him the newborn baby. And a new life has begun. We see the squalling face of that innocent newborn child. Music up. Fade out. All this in 56 scintillating minutes. Do you remember making Jailbait Baby? Oh, yeah. It was pure fun. One of the best times I've ever had in my life. I knew right away this was what I wanted to do. And once the film was in the can, the real fun began. By real fun, I assume you're referring to the patented Herb Zuzman Roadshow? Right. The 40 Thieves had this thing down to a science. In the next year, we visited 47 towns and put on 188 shows. 
Herb calls it a chump fleece. So could you like break down a typical week for us? Love to, honey. The big shows were on Friday and Saturday nights, so we roll in on Tuesday. That evening, we papered the town with one-sheet movie posters. Then on Wednesday night, Herbie Z screens the movie for a local press clergy, quote, good government groups, and selected prudes and blue noses. The whole idea, of course, is to get them so riled up, they'll try to shut us down. Mm -hmm. And with any luck, the next morning's paper has a headline like, Local censors condemn screening and clergy fear contamination of town morals by vice film. <laughs> These are, by the way, the exact headlines Herb has suggested to local reporters after slipping them freebies. This creates such a demand that they can't stop us. So now it's Friday. Showtime, right? Yeah, right. Rubes for miles, cash only, first come, first serve. I sell tickets, and Herb stuffs the dough into his money belt. Wow, all cash all the time. That's a, that's a sweet deal. Oh, you haven't even heard the best part yet. Oh, there's more? Well, after we get their ticket money, I dress up in my nurse's uniform, <laughs> and Herb changes into his doctor's lab coat. Right at the climax of the film, as your truly floozy Flanagan is wheeled into the doctor's office for the shocking live childbirth, the projector shuts down and the lights go up. I step on stage and I say, you are about to witness the most shocking event ever revealed to an American theater audience. The live birth by cesarean section of an actual illegitimate baby. <laughs> yeah, but everyone gasps. People are weeping. I continue, before this astonishing footage is revealed, we have an unprecedented one-time offer for you. Please welcome esteemed Dr. Socrates Cubbins, America's premier sex hygiene expert. Herbie, right? Of course. <laughs> First, he acknowledges the courage of the audience, comparing them to, oh, I don't know, Moses, Galileo, Jesus Christ, fearlessly seeking knowledge and sharing wisdom in the face of ridicule and ignorance. And then he uses the following words in a short paragraph, swear to God. Gonorrhea, menstruation, impotence, syphilis, masturbation, nymphomania, aphrodisiac, testicles, lesbianism, incest, sodomy, and orgasm. All in one sentence. Now that they're in shock, he offers these fine people an educational booklet entitled Forbidden Secrets of Sex Hygiene, What Every American Must Know. Available tonight only for this one performance in this one town for just one dollar. I race up and down the aisle selling these booklets out of a black medical bag. They cost less than a penny to print. So this last cash grab is pure profit. And we rarely sell fewer than 200 at any given performance. Once we pried the final dollar out of the hands of these thrill seekers, we unspool whatever childbirth footage we could show without getting arrested. Six shows in two days. That is a nice little cash grab. You betcha. We'd wrap on Saturday night and drive all night to the next town, high on the adrenaline rush of getting away with it. We'd take Sunday off to count the money, and by Tuesday, we were back in business in the next town. In years to come, Jailbait Baby will be re-released under the titles Sex Racketeers, The Sorrowful Strumpet, Youth Gone Mad, and The Passionate Pushover. And a couple of other names I haven't even tracked down oh, yet. Oh, such fun! 
but everything ends. We were enjoying another sold-out Saturday night at the Chickamauga Theater in Melvindale, Tennessee, when Herb turns to me and says, This is it, doll. I'm full in this hustle. I was shocked. Business was great. I asked him why. He says he had an offer from Hollywood to crank out some crapola for PRC and asked me to come along. The Spider-Gal films? That's right. So, Ms. Devlin... Uh, hey, call me Clara. Uh, okay, Clara. Now, you've been listening to this podcast. Uh, what haven't we covered? What would you like to share with us? What do you think, Hazel? Well, I, I'd love to know about your love affairs. <laughs> Who you love, um, why, how each one turned out, and how you felt about it. I can do that. The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by R. Lee Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith, Nancy Linehan-Charles, John Roden, Will Reinbold, and Brad Shelton. Please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find books and movies that take you deeper into the fascinating forgotten world of 1930s exploitation films from reefer madness to the road to ruin. And at the website, you can now order The Atomic Bombshell, Minx's sensational memoir as told to her granddaughter, Hazel Matthews. It dishes the dirt and names the names. Join us next time for episode number eight, Minx Devlin Saves the World, The Loves of Minx Devlin, Part 1, JFK and Elvis. Watch Minx, well, save the world from nuclear incineration, and then star in the greatest Elvis movie never released.